All right, so chapter six is lifting and moving of patients. This is a very important part of our job, and it's also a high-risk part of our job as well. A lot of injuries that EMTs, paramedics suffer is because of lifting and moving patients. Nearly every EMS call requires some lifting and moving of the patient. We have to get that patient from their residence, from their vehicle, from their floor, outside somewhere, into the back of the truck. So we're going to have to lift or move them. An improper lifting and moving can lead to injuries to ourselves as the EMTs or can cause injury to our patients as well. And it's going to be very hard for us to explain. It's going to look very poorly on us if we drop a patient because we were moving them recklessly. Back injuries are the leading cause of workman caught claims for EMS providers. So in this job, the number one reason you're going to get hurt, have to file a workman's comp claim statistically, is because of improper, not necessarily improper lifting, but because of back injuries from lifting. And body mechanics is a term that refers to methods that promote using your body in the safest, most efficient way when moving objects or a patient. So we need to think about that anytime that we are lifting or moving a patient. So things that we need to think about lifting or moving, there's four basic body mechanics to keep in mind. Our efficient methods of using the body to gain a mechanical advantage. And using good mechanics, again, will help minimize our risks of injury. So things to think about again, we want to keep the weight of the object as close to our body as possible. We're going to have much more strength. We're going to have better form as if we're lifting, it's real close to our bodies, our core, our chest, et cetera, than if we're trying to lift something heavy way out here in front of us. When we want to use the leg, hip, and gluteal muscles when lifting them. Everybody in here, I'm sure, has heard when you lift, you lift with your legs, not with your back. We want to keep our back straight and long. We want to stack the shoulders, hips, and feet in vertical alignment and avoid twisting. And twisting is where we do get in a lot of trouble, greatly risks, risks increases the risk of us injuring ourselves. And we should also reduce the height or distance through which the object must be moved if we can do so. So apply the principles of body mechanics to lifting, carrying, moving, reaching, pushing, and pulling. So about anything we're doing where we're supporting any type of weight, we need to think about body mechanics. Again, we want to keep that our spine in alignment and locked. We don't want to be bending over to lift or twisting or kind of leaning to one side while we're lifting weight. And this is going to be an important, and there's been a lot of advancement in technology that's going to help us as well. So whenever possible, instead of us using manual force with our bodies, we should substitute and use equipment instead. Things like hydraulic stretchers prevents a lot of lifting and moving than say older school um, um, manual stretchers used to. The use of things like stair chairs where we don't have to carry a patient down stairs. Again, that all should be used if we have access to that at our department. 
Other items to keep in mind, posture and fitness. Poor posture and fitness can fatigue the back, abdominal muscles, increasing the risk of injury as well. Some examples of exaggerated or very poor postures and some back conditions that can be caused. Uh, you can have lordosis, also known as swayback, where the stomach is too anterior and the buttocks are too posterior, which basically the spine goes like this and then just sways inward and then comes back down. Kyphosis or a slouch, an exaggerated curvature of the thoracic spine, which is between your shoulder blades, humpback, uh, results in shoulders being rolled forward, increasing fatigue on your lower back as well. And again, back injuries, most of the time, if you have a back injury, it's going to be in your lower back or your lumbar spine. And again, something you should just constantly be considering or thinking about your posture, even sitting in chairs, standing up for long periods of time, walking. Good posture is going to strengthen those muscles or at least uh, prevent weakness of those muscles as well. So again, we have kyphosis, which is the hunch. And then lordosis is kind of that sway back. <clears throat> so proper standing posture, again, everything needs to be it's stacked on top of each other, not keeping your shoulders back, not roll forward, etc. Even again, something we should consider when sitting is our posture as well. Again, our spines over our, our butts, and again, our shoulders are rolled back, not excessively rolled forward. Good, pot, uh, good body mechanics cannot fully compensate for poor physical fitness. If you're in extremely poor physical shape, it doesn't matter how good your technique is, you're still at a much higher likelihood of getting injured. So there are four separate components of good physical fitness. One of those is flexibility. Being flexible means that your body's gonna be able to rotate more, bend more without stretching or putting more strain on those muscles, ligaments, tendons, whatever the case may be. Just overall strength, your cardiovascular conditioning, and overall nutrition as well. Are you eating properly? Anytime we're doing lifting, it's very important that we also utilize good communication and we use team teamwork. All team members must be properly trained. If we're lifting a patient on the stretcher, it's important that whoever is lifting the stretcher knows how to properly use the stretcher, stair chairs, etc. We should try to match team members, physically match teammate, uh, team members when lifting, if, if possible. Again, if they're on an ambulance, there's normally only two providers on there. So if it's them two, they feel comfortable lifting and one of them's a very large, strong person, the other one's very small and weak, then we aren't gonna be able to really match. Again, calling additional resources, additional help, 
If we have the capabilities, though, we should try to physically match. We need to communicate uh, and coordinate throughout the lift. Everybody that's involved in that lift or carrying of that patient should know how we're going to do it, where we're going to carry the patient to, if we're going to stop and rest, et cetera. All of that needs to be communicated and coordinated. And it's also very important that we communicate with our patients as well. Tell the patient what we are doing. Not only that, we want to tell the patient what we expect of them during the move as well. And anybody want to know what we normally expect of the patient when we're lifting them or carrying them downstairs on the stair chair, et cetera, wheeling them on the stretcher? We want them to do absolutely nothing. We want them to sit there with their arms in their lap or holding the handrails and do nothing. We do not want them to reach or grab for anything because that's going to greatly increase that they're going to get their arm caught and we're going to snap their arm in half. So it's very important that we do communicate that with our patients. So we're going to lift you or we're going to carry you down the stairs into the stair chairs. I want you to cross your arms, cross your chest, and don't move or don't reach or grab for anything. Again, use good teamwork. Size up the scene immediately and accurately. And we'll talk more about the scene size up. But one of the things that we're looking for at the scene size up is, are we going to need additional resources? So if we get dispatched to a drunk patient that fell down a flight of stairs and is unresponsive in their basement, and they said, oh, by the way, your patient weighs 350 pounds. Or is two people going to be able to safely lift that patient, an unresponsive patient, out of the basement steps? No, we're not even going to try that. So at that time, we need to immediately call for somebody else to come help us with lifting. Depending on your agency, where you're working at, likely larger cities, it's going to be the fire department. We're going to call for a fire engine to come out there. That's going to give us at least four other people that can help us move. Rural areas, it may be additional ambulances. A 211, so that's going to give us at least two. Important thing is we don't attempt a lift unless we are all confident that we can safely make that maneuver, both partners. Again, we should consider the weight of the patient. Drunk person fell down the stairs. It's me and another fairly large guy going to be doing the lift, and the patient's a 110-pound female. Can me and that my partner handle a 110-pound female? Yeah, probably Again, be aware of your abilities and limitations of each team member. Both people need to feel confident with the lift. If I feel confident making the lift, but my partner says, no, I don't think we can do it safely, we're not going to attempt to do it. One of us has reservations. We're going to stop, reevaluate, call those additional resources. And again, use the equipment if we can. That equipment's out there for a reason. It's going to make our jobs and our lives a lot easier. So if we have equipment available, use the equipment. And we'll talk about some of the equipment and the techniques that we can use coming up as well. Again, communicate, communicate with your patients. Very important. The sudden movements of the patient could pose dangerous situations. Again, we don't want to startle the patient by suddenly lifting them extremely high in the air off the ground. That's going to startle them. They're going to act irrationally, flail their arms out, try to grab onto something, maybe grab onto us, causing us to lose our grip. So again, tell the patient what we're going to do. And again, what is expected of that patient during the lift? Hey, we're about to lift you up. You're going to get pretty high in the air. 
Cross your arms across your chest. Don't reach or grab anything. Try to keep as still as possible. So some general guidelines for lifting and moving. Again, know your abilities and limitations. And if you do not feel confident or comfortable with the lift, do not attempt the lift until we get more help. Again, consider the weight of the patient, the equipment that we're using as well. Again, anticipate that, hey, we're going to need additional resources. And a big thing is when we request additional resources, we always try to request those as early as possible. Request them early. If it turns out we don't need them, we can always cancel them. The last thing we want to do, though, is be waiting around on scene with a critical patient that desperately needs to be rapidly transported to the hospital because we didn't request a fire engine early enough, et cetera. So always better to err on the side of caution. Think we're going to need it, request it. If we don't need it, we can always cancel. Anytime we are actually physically lifting or carrying weight, we also only use even number of rescuers for that lift. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. Textbook testing, we use an even number of rescuers. We want that weight disbursement evenly. So if there's only three of us lifting a patient, right, we're going to have one person at the head, one person at the feet. Now we have an additional rescuer. What are we going to do with that third person? Are they going to lift the sides? Well, the answer is no, because if I'm lifting on one side, the other side's not supported, nobody's lifting the other side, very likely we're going to tip that patient over. So we use even number of rescuers, and they are always positioned kind of opposite of each other, one at the head, one at the foot. If there's another one on the side, there's got to be another one on the other side, et cetera. And anticipate muscle fatigue. If we're having to carry a patient over long distances, we're going to get tired. Our muscles are going to get tired. So pre-plan that. Know that, hey, we're going to walk a little ways when everybody starts feeling tired or a preset spot. We're going to set the patient down. We're going to shake her muscles out. We're going to relax just a few seconds, minutes, and then we're going to pick the patient back up and go again. So technique-wise, when we are lifting somebody, carrying the whole weight, whether the patient's on a backboard, we're lifting the backboard, we have an old manual stretcher that we are having to lift the manual stretcher up, we're going to use what is known as the power lift. And all that really means is when we lift, we don't do palms up, we lift palms down. We have much more strength going this way than we do this way. So the power lift offers the best defense against injuries, promotes safe and stable moves. And we use that power grip again, which is always palms facing upward, never palms down, palms up to lift. So the skill of the power lift. We want to get in position. Again, your feet should be at shoulder width apart, turn slightly outward, flat on the ground. And again, we want our the weight of that object as close to our bodies as possible. So we're gonna be right up against that stretcher. We wanna bend your knees, bring each center of gravity closer to the object, tighten your back and abdomen muscles, and using the power grip, we're going to begin lifting the patient. Again, you can see really close to their bodies, their legs are bent, their back is straight, so they're lifting with their legs, not their back, and they have that power grip, which are Palms up as well. 
And as you return to standing position, make sure your back is locked in and your upper body comes up before your hips. And again, we're lifting with our legs, not with our backs. Compare that to this one, which is improper lifting techniques. This is a backboard. And again, their legs are pretty much straight and they're bent over, hunched over at their back. So when they lift, they're putting all that weight, all that strain on their backs, making them again, much more prone to injury. They're weaker this way as well. So there's, they're more likely to lose balance, drop the patient, or just can't make that lift and drop the patient as well. And I will say this, if you drop a patient, it's your fault. If a patient falls off your stretcher, at, at least some in part, it's gonna be your fault. There's no excuse to let a patient drop. You can also do what's called the squat lift, which is an alternative technique. The, the advantage of the squat lift or when it's typically used is if you have a weaker leg than one, the other leg or an ankle. I blew my knee out at work, dislocated my kneecap at work carrying a, a very heavy patient down stairs. My knee, and this was four, this five, six years ago, my knee still doesn't feel as strong as it once did. So if I'm lifting a patient now, I tend to use more of the squat lift. It's basically the same with one little exception. Again, same steps are going to apply. We want to if perform this technique. We avoid bending out the way, still using our legs. So with the squat lift, instead of having our legs even, shoulder width apart, your weaker leg is just going to be a little bit in front. We keep it a little forward. And then when we lift, we're pushing off with that stronger leg. We're most of that weight or more of the weight is going to be on your stronger leg. So in this case, again, the weaker leg, his left leg, he thinks it's a little bit weaker. So it's a little slightly ahead of his right. So when he lifts, again, the majority of that weight is going to be off that right leg, not that left. And again, that's the only variation difference to it. Even when we're carrying equipment, it's something that we need to think about is our proper lifting techniques. And I don't know if you all ever picked up an airway bag that has an oxygen tank in it. Those airway bags can get heavy AF. So again, it is important that we do pay attention to how we're lifting equipment. We want to keep the back in the locked position, maintain proper body mechanics, and we want to avoid leaning in the opposite side to compensate for that imbalance. And everybody's seen that. You're lifting something heavy on one side, so you're kind of leaning over to kind of balance out that weight. We do not want to do that. We, again, we want to keep our back in line. So again, there's the proper one-handed carrying technique. So again, when he bends down, he's bending, not bending over at the waist. He's kind of squatting down, picking up the straps, and then moving on. Our equipment these days, we tend to carry our stretchers with us inside to ever call. So we don't carry our airway bags by themselves much more as, as far as we used to anyway. And most of the newer bags are backpacks type. So throw it on your backpack, both straps, Proper lifting technique is both straps and don't necessarily have to worry about it as much. Also, if we're having to reach in order to grab a patient, pull a patient, whatever the case may be, if we're having to reach for an object or something, get as close to the object being lifted as possible to decrease 
that effort is needed. Again, still, we want to try to get as close to it as we can. Should try to limit the reach 15 to 20 inches in front of your body. And if we're reaching again, where we're going to get in trouble more than anywhere with reaching is if we're twisting while we're having that weight as well. So try to keep your back locked and don't twist your back while you're carrying weight. Pushing and pulling, do this pretty frequently as well. Moving a patient from their bed to our bed or moving a patient from our stretcher to the uh, hospital stretcher, we got to push or pull. Not only that, sorry, pushing and pulling the stretcher. We do that on almost every call as well. So when possible, whoever's pushing, we would rather push than pull. If we must pull, we want to keep the load between your shoulders and hips close to your body and keep your back straight and slightly bent at the knees. So again, we would rather push than pull. Again, wheel stretchers, that's what we're doing. We have always, if we are moving a patient on a stretcher, should have two people on it. One at the head pushing, one at the feet pulling. Now, with that being said, the person at the feet is not doing much of the effort to move the patient. You'd rather push. She's going to be much stronger, easier for her in the back. So she's doing the majority of the work on the stretcher. She's pushing. This guy up here is mainly steering. If we're going uphill or something, he may have to do a little effort to make the stretcher move as well. But he's mainly steering and he's the brake. If something stops or he sees something, he can stop the stretcher if he needs to as well. Again, this is going to be important for y'all because y'all are going to be asked to use the stretcher as a student. So if you're at the feet of it, you just need to be make sure you're the one doing the majority of the work. You want to piss off a preceptor, make them do all the work while you're just sitting there kind of lollygagging around. They'll tell you about it real quick. Not piss off. That's probably not the right word. Most of our preceptors are very good, but you will get informed how to properly push if you're not pushing. Okay, so now we're going to go over some specific types of moves that we can use to kind of move a patient around. Some of these we use kind of frequently. Some of these in here I've never used once in my career, have no intentions to ever use in my career. And I'll make sure to point out which ones you're likely to use on scenes. So an emergency move should be performed when there is, when there is an immediate danger to the patient or the rest here. This means that something has changed dramatically on scene, that we no longer feel safe on scene, and we need to get out of that scene as quickly as possible, not worrying about patient injury, but we want to get ourselves and our patient out of there as quickly as possible because our lives, our patient's lives in extreme danger. <laughs> so there's three techniques that we can use. Armpit drag, armpit forearm drag, shirt drag, and a blanket drag. And again, these are only in emergent situations that where we need to get off the scene quickly because we or the patient's going to die, and that's from an external force. It's not because the patient is already critically injured and we got to get them loaded into the hospital quickly. This is because there is a shooter, active shooter on scene, or somebody comes at us with a knife, or somebody is a threat to us in that external environment. The house catches on fire, et cetera. So the armpit forearm drag. We just get up underneath the patient's shoulders, under their arms, grab onto their wrists, stand up, and drag them out. 
shirt drags just like it sounds. We're going to grab them by their shirt and pull them out by their shirt in a blanket drag, throw them on a blanket real quick, grab the blanket and just drag them out. And again, these are emergency situations. These are a lot very frequently or could be used by the fire department as well, a lot more frequently by the fire department as well, um, getting a patient out of an actively burning house. Other things, we do things more, more in the urgent mood category. It's performed when patient is suffering an immediate threat to life and must be moved quickly to transport for care. So things like what we refer to as rapid extrication or even possibly self-extrication. If our patient is extremely critically injured, but they're in the middle of the back seat and we have patients on either sides of them, but the patient on the driver's side rear the rear driver's side is not very injured, but I can't get to my critically injured patient because of this patient's in my way. So that non-critical injured patient, I may have them do a self-extrication. Hey, buddy, step out, keep your head and neck still, stand right there and wait for somebody else to come check on you while we get them out of the way so we can dive in there and treat the critically injured ones. Rapid extrication is just getting the, a critically injured person out as quickly as possible but still maintaining, worried about spinal precautions, et cetera. And again, something that we do very routinely are non-urgent moves. Non-urgent move is one in which there is no immediate threat to life exists. Patient can be moved in a normal manner when ready for transport. And again, most common move, uh, most common uh, move for, for us. So different types, and we'll talk about these individually, and there's pictures of these as well. We have a direct ground lift, an extremity lift, direct carry method, and a draw sheet method. And again, some of these we use all the time in EMS. Some of these, there is no way in hell I would do these, but we got to talk about them. One that there is no way in hell I would ever do a lift like this Thinking about, I mean, now there may, I may modify it, but the way they're saying this, I've never done this, never plan on doing this. There's easier ways, in my opinion. So, a direct ground lift. Patients laying on the floor, we got to give them a little stretching. So, we can drop down to our knee, scoop the patient up into our arms. If there's a third rescuer, third rescuer can get more at their hip. So, we're going to slide the patient up, and then we are going to move up to our knees rocking that patient back more prone, resting, taking a small break, resting the patient on our knees, and then stand up and then walk the patient over to the stretcher. And again, there is no way in hell I would do this. There's other techniques and we'll, and we'll talk about those. Let's, we'll go ahead. The way I would do that, if I found a patient laying supine on the floor like that and I want to get them on the stretcher, the easiest way to do it is put a sheet under them and use the sheet to lift them onto our stretcher. Not going to take that much longer. And again, a lot more comfortable with that type of move than trying to scoop the patient up. <clears throat> Extremity lift, we do, do, we do this one kind of frequently. We're in a back of a residence. Patients conscious can sit up okay on their own. Very tight quarters. Patients, again, in a back bedroom. We can't get our stretcher any closer than the living room. So there's a long, narrow hallway that we need to walk the patient through. 
An extremity lift is a, is a very easy, useful technique to use. So one rescuer is gonna reach up under their armpits, patient's gonna cross their, their uh, arms, and we're gonna grab onto their wrists. The other rescuer is just going to grab and support those legs. So again, we have one behind the patient, one at the feet, and then we're gonna to go to a standing position, and now we can carry that patient wherever we need to, to the stretcher, et cetera. Direct carry, again, I wouldn't do this one either. It's much like that ground lift, except for this time the patient's in the bed. Same type of technique. We just kind of scoop the patient up into our arms, kind of log roller towards us, stand up, and then layer back flat on the stretcher. Again, same technique. If I have a patient in a bed, they tend to already be on a sheet. If it's critical, I'm just going to keep the patient on their sheet, lift the sheet up, and throw her on our stretcher. They're not as critical. We Even if we're not worried about the patient exerting themselves, we can have the patient slide over if we wanted to as well, if it's non-critical. Or we can put a, our sheet under the patient if we're not wanting to take the patient sheet and then slide the patient over to our stretcher that way as well. Draw sheet method. You, we, we use this all the time too as well, especially once we get the patient to the hospital, they're on our stretcher. We got to get them on a hospital bed. We're going to use our draw sheet, the sheet that's on our stretcher. So we reach across the stretcher, grasp the sheet firmly. On the count of three, we're going to just slide the patient over. Very simple. With our stretchers, though, you, you do need to have somebody on this other side because the wheel locks on our stretchers are not very good, and we don't want to start pulling the patient over and that stretcher starts sliding out from under them. So you, if we're having a patient on a stretcher, we need to have somebody on our stretcher holding that stretcher to make sure it's not going to slide, slide around. All right. Any questions on anything we covered so far? Riveting stuff. I know. This, this first section is, is pretty rough, guys, but it does get better. This is, everybody agree this is better than Monday? All right, good. All right, good. All right, we're going to take a, a break. It's a pretty natural stopping spot. So let's take a 10-minute break. Let's be back at 9.35.
Okay, we'll go ahead and get going again. So moving on to packaging or transport. Now, now when we say the term packaging, all we're talking about is getting the patient ready for transport, loading them onto the stretcher. If your service still use backboards, putting them on a backboard, then putting them on the stretcher, loading them into the ambulance, all of that kind of falls under packaging. Wording this is not the greatest, but it says once the patient is stabilized, select and prepare a carrying device and move the patient to the ambulance. Again, I don't like the word stabilized because on critical injuries or critical traumas, especially, the patient may never be stable while they're with us. But whenever we're done doing what needs to be done on scene and it's time to transport, we're going to pick our device, load the patient, get him in the truck, begin transport. So some of the equipment that we use to package, the most common piece of equipment we use every patient transport should be our wheeled stretcher. We're going to put the patient on the stretcher. Depending on the brand of stretcher, most can accommodate a minimum of 650 pounds. Many manufacturers have upped that weight limit to about 750 pounds. So your stretchers can carry significant amounts of weight. Each stretcher is different. Each model or version of a stretcher is maybe a little bit different as well. So you need whatever stretcher your service that you're working for uses, you just need to know what that weight capacity is. Now, let's say our stretcher can only carry a 650-pound patient, and now we have to carry a 750-pound patient. That maxes out our stretcher, right? Does that mean we don't transport the patient? No, of course not. We're going to have to do what we got to do. That's over maxing the stretcher. We may have to put more weight on it than is it's rated for because we have no other choice. We have to get that patient to the, to the hospital. The wheel stretcher, the wheels pushing that stretcher is going to be limited to smooth terrain. Going through mud is not going to be very beneficial or, or uh, realistic on a stretcher, gravel driveways, et cetera, it's very difficult to push a wheel stretcher through that type of terrain. So it may not be our best option. Anytime we put on a stretcher, if the patient's on a stretcher, we need to ensure that we are fastening all of the proper straps, securing that patient to the stretcher. And we always or should follow the manufacturer's recommendations for what straps, how many straps to apply, et cetera. It's the manufacturer that, that does all the crash testing on these stretchers. So if they say shoulder straps are the best bet or what needs to be used, make sure we're using shoulder straps. And once that patient is on a stretcher, we never leave the patient unattended. One person needs to be with that stretcher at all times with that patient on it, at least one hand on that stretcher in case that patient tries to move and turn over, et cetera, we can stabilize that stretcher and it's not going to tip over. So right here is a perfect example. Wheeled stretcher, a paved driveway, and they're pushing and pulling the patient, getting the patient ready to load in the ambulance. I will say that stretcher right there is in load position, meaning it's all the way up. Once that stretcher is all the way up in load position, it is extremely top heavy. 
So it's very important with the patient on a stretcher, we never push that stretcher sideways. It's either front or back only, never sideways. If we're going sideways, we are, again, very likely going to tip that patient over. So this is two rescue stretcher carry. Again, you can't, can't wheel a stretcher upstairs. So they put the patient on the stretcher. Now they're carrying the patient and the stretcher down the stairs. There is no way in hell I would do this. These stretchers, especially the hydraulic ones, they're 80, 90 pounds additional weight. I don't want to carry that much more weight going down the stairs. So again, there's other techniques that we can use instead of having to carry that, that heavy stretcher up and down stairs. We can put them on a tarp disposable tarps known as mega movers that have handholds, I would much rather do that than carry the wheeled stretcher up and down stairs. Same thing right here, gravel driveway, can't really wheel the stretcher, so they're carrying the stretcher with the patient on it. Again, I'm not going to do that. We're adding a lot more additional weight, put them on a backboard, a flexi, and we'll talk about those coming up, or a tarp and carrying the patient with a stretcher right there at the back of the ambulance. Again, we're not having to carry as much weight that way. And so the, any stretcher that you find nowadays is going to be kind of a roll-in type where the legs will go up and down. Um, different manufacturers, different versions out there. This is a Ferno type of stretcher. These are not very common in this area. The type that we have in this area more frequently is going to be the striker type, which are the yellow ones we were seeing previously. So most of the stretchers in this area are striker brand. Some services may actually have bariatric stretchers. These are specifically designed for bariatric or obese patients. They can carry up to possibly 1,600 pounds. They're going to be, obviously, they're going to be wider than other stretchers and so forth. Again, some services have bariatric units. Some services don't. Just need to be familiar with what your service has. UMCMS, and I refer to UMCMS a lot because I used to work for them. That's where y'all do y'all's clinicals at. UMCMS does not have bariatric stretchers. can also have what's known as a portable stretcher, more commonly referred to as a flexi. So if I refer to a flexi, this is what I'm talking about. It's useful for carrying patients in confined spaces or for calls in involving more than one patient. Again, going up and down the stairs instead of carrying that stretcher, I would much rather use something like a flexi. Same thing with that, cross that gravel driveway, put them on a flexi, carry them that way, it's much easier than a stretcher. Some have folding wheels and legs, and some are flat with no wheels or legs. Again, just kind of be familiar with what your service carries. And all a flexi really is, is it's some type of canvas that is stretched across a rounded tubular or round tubing. So again, in most flexis will fold in half as well for easy storage. So unfold it, throw the patient on this, strap them down. That's a lot lighter than the 80, 90 pound stretcher. can also have pole stretcher or canvas leader. It's not very common in this area. Military, they use these pretty frequently. Anybody who's a fan of soccer, when they cart soccer players off the soccer field, tend, they tend to use these pole stretchers or also known as a canvas litter. 
<clears throat> a valuable piece of equipment is a stair chair. Kind of what the name sounds like. It's a chair the patient sits in, helps us go up and down stairs with it. It's useful when a wheel stretcher cannot trans, trans, traverse narrow walking spaces or stairs. Another good thing about a stair chair is it can kind of act as a wheelchair for us as well. So if we have just a very narrow hallway, fairly large patient, we don't want to carry the patient down that narrow hallway, throw them on a stair chair, use it as a wheelchair. And again, bread and butter is going to be going up and down stairs. However, thing with the stair chairs, the patient is having to sit up in a chair. So if they're having altered mental status, if they're extremely confused, combative, not following commands, or they're completely unresponsive, stair chair may not be the best piece of equipment to use. If the patient has a spinal injury, patients with spinal injuries, we typically want them laying flat. So stair chair is not going to be the best piece of equipment to use as well. Lower extremity injuries, et cetera, anything that may be uncomfortable or cause more pain for the patient. Again, a stair chair may not be the best bet. And we have a stair chair on campus. We'll get to practice with this as well. So that's what the stair chair is. It folds up nice and neat. It can unfold. And again, we can use it as a wheelchair if need be, or we can use it going up and down stairs. So we set the patient in it, strap the patient down. There's handholds down here up here, and then there's a kind of a belt system that folds down that will actually kind of glide across those steps, and it makes it very easy going downstairs. Now, going upstairs is a different story. It's much harder to go up than down, but a stair chair is useful for that. And again, there's going downstairs. And again, that's where it works the best at is going down. And you notice here, Whoever's walking backwards, if we have enough people, whoever's having to walk backwards, we should have a spotter. So going down the stairs, person at the feet is going to have a spotter, just making sure that they're not going to trip, lean too far back and stumble. Going up the stairs, the person, again, whoever's walking backwards should have that spotter, again, if there's enough people on scene. couple of versions of the stair chairs. We have the uh, rugged type, which is yellow. And then that Ferno, uh, the red one right here. Uh, this is the one that we have. This is the one that UMC EMS uses. And again, you can see with that belt system right there, this folds down and that belt will glide across the steps. One step, it's designed the length of it is where one step is down here, one step's right there and it just glides across those steps. This is that Ferno version. This one's actually mechanical, where you can actually control the speed of these belts turning, which just gives us more control, carrying less weight going up and down the stairs. Other pieces of equipment. You can use backboards. So backboards traditionally were used for spine motion restrictions. We had somebody with a suspected spinal injury, we would put them on a backboard to maintain neutral inline, in, alignment, alignment with that spine. Studies have kind of come out where backboards aren't beneficial like they thought they were. So we don't really, in this region anyway, we don't use them for spinal immobilization anymore, but we still use backboards for a moving device. And there's different types of backboards 
Most commonly, common one is a long spine board or abbreviated LSB. You can have short spine boards. You can have vest type mobilizers known as KEDs, Kendrick extrication devices, or full body vacuum mattresses, et cetera. As a lifting device, by far the most common one that we would use is a long spine board. It's about six foot long, six foot two inches long in length. Lay the patient on that, strap them down. We can carry them down or across uneven train, whatever the case may be. Again, that's a long spine board. They have straps attached to them, typically strap the patient down, carry the patient. If you have a backboard that's shaped like this, the more narrowed in, that's where the patient feet, feet go. The wider end is where the head goes. There is a best type of mobilization device, again, also known as a KED, Kendrick's extrication device. We do practice this in class. It is a worthless piece of equipment that most EMS services no longer carry on their trucks, but the state of Texas still mandates that we carry it. Not carry it, cover it in classes. Let me put it back. Full, a full body vacuum mattress. We lay this patient on this equipment. We suck all the air out of the mattress and it conforms to that patient's spine. It becomes rigid. Uh, and again, that's, it's supposed to hold the patient's spine in alignment. Not very many services, no services that I know of carry vacuum mattresses in this region. Other equipment, use something known as a scoop stretcher. Scoop stretchers can be assembled and disassembled around the patient. So that uh, if we have a scoop stretcher, we don't necessarily really have to log roll the patient onto their side, shove that piece of equipment underneath them, and then roll them back onto the piece of equipment. The scoop stretcher does what it sounds. It breaks in half, and we can actually go in there and scoop the patient up without having to log roll them. It does nothing for the spine though. So we typically and previously have not used these for patients with a suspected spinal injury. But since we're not having to log roll the patient and shove that backboard behind them, it can be useful in very confined spaces. Break it apart, slide it underneath the patient, it takes up just less room than say a backboard does. A lot of services carry scoop stretchers. You can have these fiberglass types. They still make some out of metal as well. And again, you can just see they disassemble, break in half. We can come in from each side and scoop the patient up. UMCMS does not carry scoop stretchers. And they're not used very frequently anymore either. Also use a basket stretcher more commonly referred to as a Stokes basket. It accommodates scoop stretcher and most backboards. So the cool thing about a Stokes basket is we can put the patient directly into the basket, or if they have to be on a backboard by protocol, we can put them on the backboard and then set the backboard into the Stokes basket or a flexi, tarp, whatever the case may be. Stokes basket then can also be placed on a wheeled stretcher and secured to the wheeled stretcher. And when we use Stokes baskets, for us in EMS generally anyway, is if we're carrying the patient long distance over extremely rough, hilly terrain, 
And you'll see why when we see the picture of a Stokes test. And again, the reason being is the patient's going to be sunken into the basket. So unlike a backboard where they're just sitting on top of it, if we shift it over, the patient's going to slide and try to slide off the board. The basket, they're more down into it. We have deeper handholds. And again, it just makes it a more stable ride for that patient. A couple tops, you can have these metal baskets uh, or these fiberglass baskets. UMCMS does not carry Stokes baskets. Lubbock Fire Rescue does, though. So if we need them, we do have access to them. Again, some things where basket stretchers can be used. They can be used on lifts, extrications, helicopter lifting a patient out. They may use a Stokes basket. Again, over very rough terrain is kind of where we in this area especially would be using Stokes baskets. You can see here they webbed the patient in there with webbing. So that patient is extremely secure, is not going to slide around or fall out of that regardless of what occurs. And again, it can be used, especially the metal basket type, can be used in water type of rescues as well. And again, basket stretcher over rough terrain. <clears throat> you can also use what's known as a Reeves stretcher or a flexible stretcher. And this is, can be useful in very kind of restricted areas. And basically all this is, is it's a tarp that has rigid slits that go through there, but there's a gap in between the, the rigid parts so the, the stretcher can actually wrap around the patient. So patient positioning. <clears throat> when we put a patient on a stretcher or flexi, backboard, et cetera, but we'll talk about the stretcher mainly, for transporting, et cetera, patient is either placed supine, which we'll talk more about, but supine means back facing up. So they're laying on their back or they're in a sitting position or kind of a semi-sitting position. One thing that we never do, and I don't know if this was discussed, uh, is we never transport or secure a patient prone. And by prone, I mean face down. Never under any circumstances place a patient prone. Does anybody know why? Think about George Floyd. Think about those EMTs, I think from Indiana maybe, or Illinois, that are facing murder charges because they restrict strain to patient prone. You would do a patient prone, they are more prone to positional asphyxia, meaning they're going to stop breathing. So if you do not take nothing else from this class, you better take note of this. We never transport, we never restrain, we never place a patient prone or face down. So special considerations may dictate how a patient is packaged if, if practical. So things like these circumstances, location, patient injuries may alter general guidelines. So if the patient has a spinal injury, the patient pretty much has to be laying completely supine, flat on their back. Confined space, we may not be able to place them supine initially that we may have to carry them out on their side. 
et cetera. Injuries may dictate how they have to be transported. Uh, there was a call in Lubbock, it's been a while, where a patient drove through a rebar pit while the loop was under construction. A piece of rebar went through his chin, out the back of his neck. It was through the dash, through his chin, back of the neck, out the back of the trunk. They had to cut the rebar, but we're not going to remove the rebar from his chin. So can we transport that patient with two inches of, or at least two inches, three inches of rebar sticking out the back of his head? Can we put that patient supine on their back? No. So had to transport the patient on the side. So again, we have to make adjustments based on what's going on with that patient. Unresponsive with no head injury, no neck or spine injuries. If they're unresponsive, we may opt to transport the patient, which is known in a position known as the left lateral recumbent position, more commonly referred to as the recovery position. And what that is, is we're laying the patient on their side. So we transport patient on their side. The biggest advantage of transporting a patient laying on their side is if they vomit, that vomit is not going to sit in the back of their throat because they're laying on their back and they're going to aspirate on it. So laying them on their left side can actually help clear their airway if they begin to vomit. Chest pain, difficulty breathing. We typically want to put these patients in a sitting position or we're going to put them in the position of comfort. We're going to let that patient sit on that stretcher any way that is most comfortable for them. And again, most of the time that's going to be sitting as upright as our stretcher will allow us, allow them to sit. Again, spinal injuries, they tend to need to be immobilized, not necessarily immobilized anymore, but we still want them laying supine on their back, maybe the head just slightly elevated. Suspect patients with suspected head injuries. Patients with suspected strokes, we lay them almost completely supine, completely flat on their back, but we do elevate the head just a little bit. That's going to help keep some of that pressure off that brain, keep that swelling down ever so slightly. If a patient's in shock, and there's a whole chapter of shock, <clears throat> but if they're shocked, poor perfusion, blood pressures in the toilet, we, we may put them in a supine position or put them in a Trendelenburg position where we're elevating their feet. Again, if their blood pressure is low, biggest concern with low blood pressure is their vital organs and their thoracic cavity and their brain is not getting enough oxygenated blood flow to it. So one thing we can do is we can lift their legs up, force all that blood in their legs to kind of drain into their torso. Again, trying to ensure that uh, their vital organs are still getting perfused. Patients alert and they're complaining of severe nausea or they're actively vomiting, we're going to have the patient sit up or lay them on their left side. Again, that's just going to help clear their airway if they do begin vomiting again with us. Pregnant patients that are over the 20th week of gestation, they're 20 weeks pregnant, we never put a pregnant patient over the 20th week gestation completely flat on their back. We tend to want to either have them sitting upright or if they need to be laying down, we're going to lay them on their left side. The reason being is they got a baby growing in them, right? That baby weighs something. 
So if we're laying them completely flat, all of the weight on the, of that fetus, the baby, is compressing downward and it's compressing or cutting off blood flow to the heart. It's compressing the inferior vena cava, which is the large vein that feeds the heart. So for depressing, compressing that inferior vena cava, we're reducing the preload that gets to the heart, meaning we're going to drop the patient's blood pressure. Drop the patient's blood pressure. Now mom is going to be in trouble. And if mom's in trouble, the baby's going to be in trouble. So 20th week gestation or over that, never lay a pregnant patient that far along completely flat on their back. And they're because they can get uh, supine hypotension is what we refer to it as. So lay them on their left side or have them sit up. Infants and toddlers. If we have a kiddo, we got to make sure that we're transporting them safely to the hospital as well. If we have access to a car seat, we have a sick kid get called to a residence. Kid is, I got three month olds, extremely sick, looks bad. Maybe transport them in their car seats, put their car seat on their stretcher, secure it, transport them that way. If not, there is commercial devices or attachments basically that go onto your stretcher that we can put up to a newborn on our stretcher with these attachments. Elderly patients, the old people, we want to be careful in how we position them. Uh, if the patient has osteoporosis, makes their bones extremely weak and fragile, can't manhandle those patients. Certain types of arthritis, other conditions that affect flexibility, we're going to have to put them on the stretcher any way that is comfortable for them, and we're not going to restrain them in any way that could potentially cause injury. Again, so elderly, general rule, position of comfort for them as well. And do not force their body into a position that they cannot tolerate that's painful or is likely to cause injury. If the patient has a physical disability, we want to determine the nature or how we transport them is going to be determined by the nature of the disability. May require a modification, may not. Give special care to securing the patient. If there are, if say they have pretty significant curvature of the spine, we need to pad voids, those void spaces or so forth to make it as comfortable for them as possible. Offer them a pillow, roll a blanket, towel, place it behind their head or neck, again, make them as comfortable as possible. And if our patient does have specialized equipment, life-assisting equipment like walkers, wheelchairs, canes, et cetera, and if we can safely transport those with us to the hospital, we need to transport them with us to the hospital. No, the patient's not going to need their wheelchair while they're in the hospital, but if they get discharged, they are going to need that wheelchair. So again, if we can safely bring it with us, we should do what we can to bring it with us. If we are going to load a patient on a helicopter, there are some special considerations to deal with with a helicopter. If the patient is involved in a hazardous material situation, they definitely need to be decontaminated, get those hazards washed off of them before they get on a helicopter. Anybody ever seen the back of a medical helicopter? Very, very tiny. They have very, very little room to work. So they're going to do a lot of things on scene before they even load them on the hospital. So if we can do that before they get there, we're just saving time for transport. 
but we need to make sure that that airway is managed appropriately. It's going to be very difficult for them to say to intubate a patient in the air. We need to make sure that we are leaving the chest accessible because that is something they're going to constantly reassess during the flight. Once that helicopter is, is landing or if we are going to do a hot load where we're pushing the patient or taking the patient to the helicopter with their rotors still spinning, we need to make sure that we secure all the equipment. That rotor wash or the wind that is caused by those the rotors can be pretty dramatic. Make sure that we're communicating with the patient. Tell them that we're putting them on a helicopter. Tell them what to expect during the process. Cover patient's eyes or have them close their eyes, uh, ears. More importantly than any of that is if they do have open wounds, we cover those exposed wounds. We don't want to blow rocks or dirt or debris or grass into an open wound. So make sure we are covering those before that rotor wash hits. The golden rule when we're dealing with air transport is follow the directions of the flight crew. They will not allow you to approach the helicopter by yourself. What helicopters, med helicopters tend to do is they'll send a representative to you. They'll tell you exactly what to do and they'll coordinate everything. So follow the directions of the flight crew. And again, never approach the helicopter by yourself. All right, so if we're having to carry a patient, there are some general guidelines. Again, if we can not have to lift and we can put them on a stretcher and push the patient, we need to use that as possible. Make sure that whatever piece of equipment we have placed that patient on, whether it be a stretcher, backboard, a flexi, or what have you, that we are securing the patient properly to that device. Should use a minimum of three straps. Again, Things like wheeled stretchers, if they have shoulder harnesses, we should use shoulder harnesses as well. Again, consider your lifting limitations. And if you don't feel confident or comfortable with the lift, speak up, wait for additional help. Again, when we are performing the lift, make sure that we are in constant communication with your partner. and keep the weight as close to your body when we are making an actual lift as well. Again, talk to your patients, tell them what's going on, what we expect of them to do throughout that time as well. Another important aspect, if we're on flat terrain, if there are patients on a stretcher or we're carrying the patient, if the terrain is nice and flat, we should try to carry or push the patient feet first. Again, that just kind of helps. They can see where we're going, and oftentimes it kind of helps alleviate some anxiety as well. So again, flat, nice, even train. We should push the patient feet first. For moving up or downhill, though, the patient's feet should be downward. So if we're going upstairs, for et cetera, we're going to be carrying them head first because the feet should always be pointed down heel. So stairs, heels, et cetera. That way, if something does happen and we lose our grip, drop the patient and they begin sliding down the stairs, at the very least, they're going to be sliding feet first, not head first. And not only that, it helps with the weight distribution. Where's the heaviest part of the patient going to be, the head end or the feet end? Head end, normally. 
So if we're going upstairs and we're going feet first, we're just putting even more weight on that head end because of gravity. So by putting them feet downward, at least we're kind of dispute, uh, distributing some of that weight a little bit better. So if we have two people that's carrying a patient, say on a bag board, the proper technique is we're going to have one person at the feet, one person at the head. Whoever is at the feet, if we're going feet first, that person is going to have to walk backwards. And again, the feet or the head weigh more, so the stronger of the two should be at the head end. <clears throat> I'm sorry, the rescuers must be facing each other. And again, the EMT at the foot is going to have to walk backwards. I might have misspoke earlier. But if there's only two of us, somebody is going to have to walk backwards. And again, typically it's the person at the feet if we're going feet first. And again, we always want to lift with even number of pay people. So if there is a third person, all that third person is really going to be doing is spotting, making sure whoever is walking backwards is not going to trip over anything. If we have four people, now we can use all four people for the carry. There's a couple different ways we can do this. We can have one rescuer at the head, one rescuer at the foot, and in this case, since there's four of us, nobody has to walk backwards. They can turn around and carry it that weight behind them. And then the other two rescuers, one's going to be on each side of the backboard, Stokes basket, whatever the case may be. Or we can use, if we need to, based on circumstances, what's going on with patient-patient weight, we can do two people at the feet, two people at the head. Again, as long as we're evenly uh, distributing our lifters, whatever we need to do in order to do it. So again, that's an example of four people, one person at the head, one person at the feet, not having to walk backwards, one person on each side. And if we're using it like this, it may also be referred to as a diamond carry. If we're having to take a supine patient face up on their back downstairs, stair chair again is going to be preferred if we have access to that piece of equipment. But again, it's not always feasible. Again, if we have a patient cardiac arrest or unresponsive, again, stair chair is probably not the best bet. Again, whatever device we are using to carry the patient down the stairs, make sure they're strapped to the device. If the patient is unresponsive and it cannot control their hands, we may want to secure their hands to the device as well. If it's a backboard, for example, put their hands at their sides and you put the straps over their arms as well. If that's not feasible for whatever reason or we're not, pref not preferring it, we can tie their hands together as well. Get a piece of curlix, triangular bandages, tie their hands together, then let it rest on their chest. And again, feet should always be going downhill and use a spotter for whoever is having to walk down backwards. If your service does neonate transports, you may be asked, your service may be used to transport a isolate. Use your transportation of newborns. They attach to your stretcher in one form or another. Straps, it may have a rail system that slides in, et cetera. 
it's very vital because again, there's going to be a newborn neonate in that isolate. It's very vital that we properly secure that isolate to the stretcher so the isolate doesn't tip over and fall off during transport. So in summary, lifting and moving patients is performed on almost every single call that we work on. If we're transporting a patient, there is going to be some aspect of lifting or moving a patient. Again, these are we do these on almost every call for the most part. So these are good skills that you need to be familiar with. And again, stair chair, we will get some practice on lifting and moving stretcher operations. Uh, we'll practice a little bit on. We don't have the same stretchers that UMC uses. Uh, we have the same top. Ours are all manual. UMC EMS and pretty much every service nowadays has electronic or hydraulic stretchers. Another capability is the crew the equipment when organizing lifts and moves as well. Again, just make sure that whatever we're doing, we're doing it safely not only for the patient, but for us as well. We want to make sure that we are not doing anything that's going to cause injury to us. All right. Any questions over chapter six? 